You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I want us to dive into God's word this morning. Just really had a lot of faith this morning that God's word is going to be living and active. And that's the way, you know, with eyes of faith that we should see his word, amen? It's not just a historical book, although it is. It has a historical authority to it, but the Bible is self-described as a living and active sword. Or Ephesians chapter six calls it the sword of the spirit. So there, there is this a way in which Holy Spirit brings the Bible to life to cut into our hearts, which can be painful, but I praise God for his love that does that refining, transformative work in our hearts, amen? Hey, so this morning, we're gonna look at Hebrews chapter 12, and my prayer is that if you are weary or if you are discouraged, that you would get a fresh vision of Jesus this morning. You get a fresh vision of the Lord, specifically as a good father. I know it's Mother's Day, but I want you to see in this passage the perfection of the Lord as he trains us and raises us up as his kids. And so if you're discouraged or you're weary this morning, this is going to be one of those timely words. It's gonna be a now word. If you're not weary or discouraged, I want you to throw this in your back pocket as, as a uh, resource for the days to come because we will all enter seasons where we're gonna need to lean in uh, in a very intentional way to receive from the Lord what he, what he uh, has for us for the journey ahead. Amen. So we've been looking, we've been going through Hebrews since November of 2022, just verse by verse, just uh, working our way through it, and it has, been, it has been rich. As we've seen Jesus exalted above the angels, exalted above the prophets, exalted above Moses, exalted as the fulfillment of the law, presented as the new and better covenant. Jesus in all, and so we get here to the end of Hebrews, and it, and it brings us really to the, the so what? What does this mean for our life? Because it does have great implications for our life. Just as Quincy was referring to worship, worship has immense implications for our actual daily life. It's not just about singing songs, and we say it often, it's not just Christian karaoke. For us, for us worship has a very specific role of realigning our vision and our values for life, our priorities for life. When you catch a glimpse of the goodness of God, it changes everything. It changes everything. The way you see the people around you, you have a whole lot more patience when you are filled up with the goodness of God. You have a lot more love and tenderness to your spouse or your kids. If you are enraptured by the goodness of God, amen? And so worship has, has that role, and so it is that we see in the book of Hebrews that as we look to Jesus, we'll just read it, and then, uh, and then I'll share some more. Hebrews, actually, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna read verse one first. It's actually not on the screen, but verse one. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all this, here is the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. This is now our way of life as a Christ follower. Even though he's not here on this earth, we look to Jesus, 
the founder and the perfecter of our faith, or the author or the initiator and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is our new way of life, looking to Jesus, both the source of our faith initially and continually. It is Jesus. So I have this picture for this morning. It's this picture of you running a race for the Lord with a smile on your face. I'll just talk about a friend of mine, Pastor Alex, he's our college pastor. I've caught him. I've known him since his freshman year of college and there were times during his college years here uh, where I caught him doing this and I've seen him since. But he is an avid runner. He loves to work out. He inspires all of us. Not enough for me to become a runner, but, <laughs> but he does inspire me. Um, but I've caught him at different times running around town with a smile on his face. No joke. I remember as a college student seeing it and then uh, after they came back, they come on staff here in Ames, they lived close to us. So every once in a while I catch him and he literally, I don't know what he's listening to or how he does it, but somehow he is running with a smile on his face. And that's my picture for you this morning is that you would run a race for the Lord not so much with a smile on the outside, but a smile on the inside. That there would be this joy that sustains you, that allows you to be an overcomer of discouragement and weariness that may come your way because you're enraptured by a vision of the one, the author and the initiator of your faith, King Jesus. He has your heart so fully that you internally can smile. There's many times, honestly, just during prayer or during worship where I smile because I feel like the Lord has so just come into this place and he is that wonderful. He is that beautiful. He really, really is. So that's my heart for you this morning. So it's gonna get real here, okay? I'm just gonna be honest. Uh, as we get into Hebrews chapter 12, it's gonna get real. Like life is not all kicks and giggles, okay? It's not all sunshine and roses. There is, there is a difficulty to life that Hebrews chapter 12 is going to be pretty honest about. And honestly, the writer of Hebrews has been honest throughout it. But I'm just saying, as we bring the gospel to life in our day-to-day -day life, which is the Lord's will for you, the Lord's will is for his good news to have implications for your Monday through Saturday, not just what you do on Sunday morning, but implications throughout your life. And so the writer of Hebrews doesn't skirt around the reality that there are difficulties, that there are trials and tribulations as Jesus promised us there would be. So let's read verse three. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So consider him, that, that Greek word is like to analyze, so to be thoughtful about the one, let him be the standard. Continue, let this be a pattern for your life that you bring before your, your eyes, your eyes of faith, uh, the eyes of your heart, continually the person of Jesus as the standard, as the one who literally willingly submitted himself to the difficulty and pain of this life, to endure it and to be an overcomer, to be victorious, so that you won't become faint hearted or weary. And the, the language there is like, in reference to verse one, like a runner falling short of the finish line. If you've ever watched a race, they, they don't stop slowing down, or they don't start slowing down until they've crossed the finish line, right? 
It's such a tragedy if they run and they're so close to the finish line and then they stop. That's what the writer of Hebrews is calling them to, is to finish the race well, to finish it to the end. Right now I'm coaching third and fourth grade softball and right now the goal for the the year is that they would learn to run through first base, right? (laughs) First base, you can, in in the game of softball or baseball, you can actually run through it. It's just kind of like a little extra perk for making it to first. You can run through first base. But there is something internally where the girls, they want to kind of slow down into first base because they know the other bases, they can get tagged out that way. So our goal is that they'd learn to run all the way through first base. The Lord's will for you is for you to finish the race well, for you to finish all the way to the finish line with a dead out sprint with him as your prize, with him as your, the one who has your gaze and has your, your vision. It's him and him alone. That's, that's the, the language that the writer of Hebrews is is calling us to, that we wouldn't start slowing down prematurely before the finish line. All the more, I say, as I get older, all the more if you've, if you're, if you've walked with the Lord longer, I encourage you, continue to go after the Lord with all that you have. Do not slow down. While he has breath in your lungs, give him your all continually. Run the race strong and well. Verse four, in your struggle against sin, this is your encouragement, in your struggle against sin, you should know this, that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Again, because Jesus is the standard and he gave literally his all, he gave his life to be shown victorious, to, to, to finish well. And so if you're here today, you haven't, You haven't fought this fight to the point of shedding your blood and the writer of Hebrews could also be referring to to heroes of the faith that he had just referenced in Hebrews 11 who also shed blood for the sake of the redemptive story. We're not in that camp yet, therefore have courage. Continue to push forward. If you have breath in your lungs, if you have another day before you, push forward, finish strong. Okay, verse five. So here I'm gonna gonna actually read for five or six verses. We're gonna look at this specifically, the Lord's way of training us, the Lord's way of refining us, of making us look more and more like him. This is the Lord's way, verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So the Lord is training you. The Lord is training you for a purpose, and this purpose is to actually conform you into the image of his son. Why? Because what Jesus came to do is to adopt you into a family, 
regardless of your origin story, you know, your earthly story, the Lord adopted you into a family. And he is a good father. And a good father trains his kids. Right, we, we can all just, we know, we know that inherently. We, we know a good father wants us to grow healthily and grow into maturity. My, my, my family story was one that was broken. You know, some from my parents' own choices and some outside of their control, honestly. But my mom did pass away when I was seven. And so my dad was relegated to having uh, nannies watch us. And over a two-year period, we went through eight or nine different nannies. We were really hard on babysitters or nannies. And, um, but I've, I've shared this story before just to get a picture of what we all would know is common sense when it comes to child rearing. There's one nanny who just let us run amok, just do whatever we want, to the point that as an eight-year-old boy with my 10-year-old older brother and my six-year-old younger brother, we rode bike at 1 a.m. to the grocery store to get two-liter sodas, because that's what you do. That's what you do if you're unsupervised. You ride your bike to the store and you get two-liter so- sodas. And, and this, this poor nanny, she just, she didn't have a clue of what, of what it was like to raise kids. She, she came out, she rode, and she um, drove her car and she found us. And, she didn't reprimand us. She didn't scold us. She said, hey, boys, I think it's time for you to come home. <laughs> and so we went home with our two-liter sodas and mission accomplished for us. We, we, were, we were golden. But in the natural, we all know that's not, that, that, that is a, a lack of parenting, right? To let kids do whatever they want. But for some reason, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, like we get frustrated and we lift up our fists at him when things are difficult in this life. But this is part of his heart of parenting us, fathering us, training us to actually entrust us with difficult things so that we can be conformed into the image of his son. That's his purpose. Romans chapter eight talks about that higher purpose of him conforming us to look more like him. So you've been adopted into a family and he doesn't want you just to stay as a newbie, immature in the family but he wants you to grow up into something, someone who is strong and mature and actually looks a lot like him more and more and more. Do you understand? That's the Lord's heart. And so I want us to properly understand discipline. There's three, kind of three uh, types of discipline that I, I just want us to properly understand because I think a lot of times people get frustrated with the Lord when difficult things come and they begin to actually put it on him and question his character. But we, do, we don't do that in the natural when it comes to our own parents. So sometimes we do, you know, if we're just a um, disgruntled teenager or something, maybe you, maybe you do. But later, as you come to your senses, your frontal lobe develops and you realize, okay, my parents had wisdom. And you realize, oh, they were really good parents. And on this Mother's Day, you know, that's what happens in our hearts. You realize, wow, my mom was awesome. She was so good to me. Yeah, she, at times, called me higher as she, as she put me in positions to, to be stretched, Right? That's what a good parent does. So I would say when it comes to this passage, Hebrews chapter 12, and we think of that word discipline that the writer of Hebrews uses, we think of punishment. We think of, in you know, parental terms, when we catch a kid doing something wrong. And so we think that's, that's the one dimension to discipline, is simply just corrective punishment. And so then the tough things come in our life, difficulties come in our life. We're like, oh, the Lord must be mad. I must have done something wrong. Like you don't overtly know what you did wrong, but you're like, I must have done something wrong because I'm going through something difficult and the Lord's mad at me now and now I'm being punished. 
There's so much more to parenting than just correctively disciplining our kids, correctively like redirecting. That's part of it. And I'll tell you, the Lord will do that as well. When we mess up, when we do sin, when we go against his way, his, his law, his, his way of human flourishing, he will correct us. That's what a good father does. He says, son, he, just, he addresses us as a child, as a son or his daughter. He says, son, come. No, you're better than this. I've called you, I've redeemed you from that. I've forgiven you of that. That's not who you are anymore. Now you're, now you're a new creation and he calls us higher. That's corrective discipline and I praise God for that. But there's more to it than just corrective discipline. A second type of discipline that the Lord utilizes in our life and any parent also utilizes is helping us traverse just difficult things in our life that come our way outside of our own doing, outside of our own decisions. You can you know, think of a, um, some kid being mean to their, their, their friend at school. You know, a, fr- a peer at school being mean, mean to your kid. One human tendency or parental tendency could be to come in and you know, fight the fights for your kid. Or you could also use it as a training moment to teach them who they truly are and where their, their value really comes from, right? As they get older, bad things will happen. They'll get a flat tire. And that becomes an opportunity for you to teach your kid how to change a tire, right? What bad parenting is is saying, I'm going to guarantee that my kid never has difficulty in their life, right? Then we create a bubble child, right? Helicopter parents do that. We, we, we have a tendency in us to want to just protect them from any pain, any strife, any difficulty, any trial. That's not good parenting. We know that. Inherently, we know that, even if sometimes we, we struggle to know the balance, Especially as they get into their teenage years, we have to realize they will go through difficulties. They will face things that stretch them, that discourage them, and that's the, that is a part of our training then, to come in and say, to help them think through how to respond rightly to those moments. So that's part of the Lord's discipline as well, is helping us respond rightly to difficulty. Difficulty that's outside of our, our decision-making and outside of our choices. There, there's, a, there's a third type of discipline. And this is a discipline people a lot of times don't think of, which is preparation for things ahead, preparation for life ahead. That is a huge part of parenting, is training our kids for what we know will be of value in the future. And it's a huge part of the Lord's training for us as well. That word, the Greek word that's translated for discipline can also be translated to train or to educate. So as the Lord is disciplining us, he is training us or educating us, sometimes in response to sin, sometimes in response to difficulties brought on from other people or from, honestly, just a world um, that's subject to the curse. Or thirdly, in preparation for what is to come. The Lord may be training us or educating us for what is to come because he's calling you into something in the, in the days to come that he wants you to be prepared for. And that's a huge part of parenting. You can't foresee everything, but there's a lot that you've learned as you've walked with the Lord and as you've walked in this life. And how we train our kids, especially in their teenage years, sets them up for success in the years to come. So I think that paradigm is very helpful for us understanding the care to the Lord. 
Because I would say many times people get disillusioned, they get faint and weary hearted, or they get weary and faint hearted when they encounter difficulties and they begin to then question the character of God. I wanna release you from that this morning. He is a good father. He's a perfect father. And so every time you go through difficulty or a trial or tribulation in your life, I can tell you, it's not because he's mad at you. Humbly submit yourself to the Lord and, and allow him to teach you. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, and he wants, you to, he wants to teach you his ways about his heart. He wants to lead you. He wants you to look more and more like his son, Christ Jesus. Amen? I hope that's helpful. Let's read verse 12, because this is what's then at stake. If you're gonna say yes to the training of the Lord, the education, the discipline of the Lord, this is what's at stake, and this is why I think it's important to say yes to his training or his discipline. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The Lord's will as a good father is for you to be strong and healed. For you to be healed. Because he has redeemed us from a life that has... Um, continue to at times haunt us or try to pull us back into the old ways, the Lord is healing us of that. And the Lord is, wants to do a work in our hearts deep inside of us that transforms us from glory to glory in our life with him. And so the Lord's will for you is for you to be healed. And so the, the writer of Hebrews here is, is using language that's actually used to describe the children of Israel as they're on the journey following the Lord towards the promised land. And there would be times where they would get discouraged, where they would begin to feel weak. And there was this kind of charge given to the children of Israel to gird up their legs, to strengthen themselves in the Lord, to lift up their drooping hands and their weak knees and continue on the journey. And where that journey is going to lead you is greater strength, wholeness, and healing. That's a huge part of living, honestly, life in community with other people, as you'll realize you will grow and be healed of things that the Lord redeemed you from in the past. And I found that to be the case in my own life time and time again. That as I do life with other people in community, the Lord brings out these hurts and these, these things that, these roots that live deep in my heart that he's redeemed me of because he wants to heal me of those things. He wants me to walk in greater wholeness and greater healing. So what's at stake? You know, if we, if we refuse the discipline of the Lord, if we say yes to the discipline of the Lord, it's either we're gonna be healed or we're not gonna be healed. So I, I say yes to healing in my life. And the healing here is really a, a spiritual, emotional healing. It, um, it's not so much it's not so much the context of physical healing on the Lord, although the Lord did purchase that for us on the cross. It's in reference to a wholeness and vitality in our very life. Verse 14, this is the second thing that's at stake. Strive for peace with everyone for the holy, for, and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So first thing is healing, second is holiness. That's what's at stake. Do you want to walk in greater and greater holiness? Then say yes to the training of the Lord. 
say yes. You can know what the Lord's will is. It's for you to look more and more like Christ. Christ was holy. Therefore, what's at stake in us saying yes or refusing the discipline of the Lord is holiness. And I think this verse is so interesting and stretching. The Lord's work of holiness in our life isn't just a, an internal, individualistic um, pursuit or goal. It's actually something that's fleshed out in community. The context here is in community. Strive for peace with everyone. For holiness is the Lord's will for your life. That's his will for your life, is for you to walk in holiness. And holiness is reflected in the decisions that you make in secret when no one else is around that's part of holiness, but holiness is also reflected in our life with other people and being this peacemaker like Christ himself. And being, being one who strives for peace is not one who is passive. It's not one who just everything's gray. There is no black or white in this life. No, one who strives for peace has convictions but also has this wisdom from the Lord, has this wisdom to be able to discern what it is that's worth, worthy of being called out and what is not. Like what are battles that should actually, lines that should be drawn and what, what should not. And we strive for peace with everyone because we're walking in the ways of the kingdom, the ways of our prince of peace. And that is holiness. So this is what's at stake. It's healing in our, in our lives. It's holiness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. This is a verse that should stop us in our tracks, that should cause a little shudder to go down your back, like this sense of reverential awe for the gift of God, the grace of God, which actually can be failed to be received. It can be, it can be rejected by our actions. That's what he's saying. And he, in the, uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians also says this, 2 Corinthians chapter six, he says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. He uses very similar language in a very similar context where we refuse the gift of God over our life because of the way that we live. We, we treat it with a scorn. We treat the precious gift of Christ's own blood and life and resurrection life. We treat it as something cheap. We scorn it. And he says we fail to obtain the grace of God. And again, the context here is in community life because he's talking about this root of bitterness that then also infects other people. Again, pointing to the, the reality that this life in this race and this journey should not be done in isolation. I have found isolation, not just um, the spirit of individualism which runs amok in our culture, but isolation from community where we give ourselves a pass from being uncomfortable in community breeds self-righteousness. It breeds this arrogant pride that, that pretends like we see perfectly, like we see rightly in every way. But there's this humility that the grace of God is attracted to. Scripture says that. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So when we submit ourselves into, into community and its messiness and its imperfections, and, and, and we carry this, this dependence on the Lord, the Lord meets us there and he pours out his grace. We receive fresh, a fresh gift 
of grace to live out that life with God in community with others. Thank you, Chris. Amen. Chris is going to receive it. The rest of you are mulling it over. You're like, okay, I want to receive the grace. I want, I want it. But I mean, the implications are like the, what's at stake is huge here. A root of bitterness springing up and causing trouble, obviously within yourself, but also others. And so like the, like the eternal implications here are huge. Jesus didn't hold back at all in terms of calling this out. If we cause other people to stumble, he says it's better for a millstone to be tied around our neck and we're thrown into the sea. So let's get this right. Let's make sure there's no root of bitterness in us, that there's not a sense of self-righteousness or, um, or anger or bitterness towards people, but rather allow the, forgive, the extravagant grace and forgiveness of the Lord to wash over you afresh. Let him remind you of what he saved you from what he forgave you of. And if he forgave you of all that he's forgiven you, of course you can forgive your neighbor for whatever offense that they've thrown at you. It all just becomes so, so silly, doesn't it? Like our, our frustrations with other people, our sins against other people, our bitterness towards other people. Okay, so healing, holiness, we receive grace. So these are, these are huge implications. And Verse 16 and, and 17, I'm gonna ask Scott to come to the keys because we are gonna respond. Uh, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The, the fourth thing that's at stake here when it comes to saying yes to the training of the Lord is self-control. Either we, either we will be trained to be self-controlled or we will continually be mastered by fleshly desires. Like that, that insatiable fleshly hunger that is attributed to immaturity and childishness. We'll never be set free from it if we don't say yes to the training of the Lord. So I can tell you the Lord's will for your life, his will for my life, is for us to grow in self-control. Esau, especially in like Jewish culture, was this like quintessential example of giving in to fleshly desires. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. So something so fleeting, something so temporary, he abandoned the greater, longer lasting blessings for a simple bowl of soup. But how similar is that to what we do in the flesh when we give in to our momentary hungers, when we give in to our, our momentary, immature, childish hungers, we give in to it in a moment to, to suit a, a fleeting desire. And in that, we're selling our soul to those, the, to those things. The Lord's will for you is for you to walk and grow in self-control. For us more and more, to not allow anything to be master over us other than King Jesus himself, amen? That's the Lord's will for us. I want us to respond to Jesus. Could we all stand in, in this place? I told you my desire is that you would run your race with a smile on your face. 
that the Lord would fill you up with a vision of himself so you could run this race with fresh encouragement. And part of that is, or a major part of that is seeing him rightly, that he really is a good father, a perfect father. So that's what I wanna deal with this morning. It's Mother's Day, which, which fittingly means we, we think about where we came from and our upbringing and all that. Can I tell you, the father of lights, as James calls him, is not like any earthly father. He's better than that. And Jesus, as he came to this earth, a major part of his mission was to reveal the father to us. In John 14, he said that, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says your father in heaven cares for you. You don't need to toil, you don't need to care, care about the things that the world cares about because your father in heaven cares for you. So I want you to rightly see the father this morning so that you'll submit yourself willingly to his discipline or his training or his correction or his education so you'll grow into the things the Lord has for you. Would you close your eyes in this place? This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.